mom thought she knew about all the shenanigans that we got up to, and she did not. Didn't we tell her about the hay hook like a few years ago? Yeah. Yeah. That was effective shame. Remember you told me not to tell because I would be in so much trouble? That you stabbed me with a hay hook? You stabbed me with a hay hook. That's not how I remember it. I have a scar. I do too. Are there multiple incidents? It sounds like maybe there is a little revenge going on. I'm sure you started it. All I said was on guard and you... I do remember this one now. Chopped me. Like you didn't even look. You just did like a (laughs) crazy like... You want to play on guard and then you like did this crazy chop move without even making eye contact and it just went. That's what you get. Yeah. And somehow convinced me I would be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. It worked. We didn't tell her until we were in our 30s. So well played. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. What do you remember about being a kid growing up on a ranch? I remember being outside. Um, And I remember thinking the work we were doing was play. Like did did it feel normal? Yeah, of course it felt normal. Um kids can normalize any situation. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it felt it felt totally normal. Um I thought everybody grew up on ranches. <laughs> you know, and it, and around here kind of did. Like the kids that we went to school with, like their dads were Loggers or cowboys. Right. A lot of times both. Yeah. Yeah. Until we were a little bit older. Um, that was true for sure. And um, yeah, we all had kind of similar upbringings. And it's not until you're an adult and living in other places and you start trying to tell stories and you get a lot of blank stares and awkward long pauses. Like, oh, this wasn't normal. <laughs> so what's something that caused that kind of reaction? Like, what's a story that you told about growing up here on the Sixth Ranch that, you know, somebody kind of was like, that's crazy. Yeah, I think a lot of them. I think that um, it probably feels similar to somebody with a thick accent where you get the same look of like, 
there was a lot of words in there I didn't know. I think you just said something normal, but with words that I don't know. So, um, yeah, you know, I like to tell the story of you and I having a blanket out in the middle of a pasture and a bell (laughs) and a few toys, probably snacks. And we were just told to stay there. And eventually our mom would come back. And if she didn't, we were allowed to go either down the irrigation line or down the fence line to find her. Um, That's a story that makes people look at you, maybe questioning the like sanity or question your mother's ability. And this is at age like two, three. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Or younger. Yeah. Heave you out there in the field and like, don't cross a fence. Yeah. Like this this pasture is your babysitter. Nothing bad is going to happen to you inside this pasture. If you don't cross a fence, you're fine. Exactly. And that might be a square mile. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mom might have to come hunt us down a little bit at some point, but it was going to be all right. Yeah. Nothing bad was going to happen. Totally. Um, yeah. And so we did stuff like catch frogs or, you know, make dandelion chains or... Um, you know, we could fill an entire day in that pasture and never, we weren't allowed to say, remember we weren't allowed to say we were bored. Yeah. That was, that was a bad one. That was a bad one. It was like giving yourself a sentence to hard labor. Exactly. Yeah. Like you could come up with something to do or I'll come up with something to do for you. And it wasn't, um, here's some Play-Doh. <laughs> yeah. Remember how awful it was if we missed the school bus? I do because I did it a lot. Yeah. Um, so our driveway is half a mile long and bus number eight driven by John. Pretty sure he still drives it. I see him. Remarkably. He still does. Remarkably. He's still driving that route. It still comes past at 715 mm-hmm. on the dot. There are times when we would be cresting the hill at like 712 and a half <laughs> and see the bus coming around the corner and... It happened all the time. And he if he could see us, he would wait. And we'd have to sprint for a half mile as if he were not going to wait. But if we missed the bus and had to do that walk of shame back up the driveway, there was bad hard work waiting for us. So much work. Yeah. So much easier just to go to school. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, when's the last time you sprinted for a half mile? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a bit personal. <laughs> I haven't had the need. I haven't had the need to sprint a half mile in a minute. Not in that kind of panic either. It's, yeah. I remember one time I had to um, move this gigantic pile of dirt with a (laughs) shovel to another place that was like 10 yards away. And when I got done with that, um, and I can't remember which parent told me to move it the first time, but when I got done with it, the other parent came out and... (laughs) I got in trouble for moving the dirt. It was over here for a reason and I had to move it back. Later, I watched, and this was much later that this movie even came out. I watched this Robert Redford movie about when he was in prison and they made him do that. And like, he was moving rocks and yeah, it sucked. But I was like, hey, I had to do that when I was like six. Robert, toughen up. Yeah, I think that's what I meant by that like fine line between work and play. Like you never really knew if this was for fun or this was just part of the day that was getting something done. 
Yeah. But we did it together. You know, we always like we're working on this project together. Um, yeah. You didn't know if that hole was supposed to be dug or if they were just trying to occupy your time because you were being too wild to garden or whatever was happening. Yeah. I did dig this ditch out with a shovel one time in the front pasture. And I did a, a good job because I didn't want to have to do it again. That was my reason for wanting to do it right. So I did a very good job. The sides were nice and even. Like everything was perfect about this ditch. This was a good ditch. And I knew it. And at the end of the day, you know, inspection time, parents come down. And uh, and then I got the worst compliment I'd ever gotten in my life, which was, you're really good at digging ditches. Oh, no. I was like, oh, I took it too far. <laughs> I've done wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, I cleaned a ditch before prom. I remember that was, um, I learned later in life that some girls spent the whole day getting ready for prom. Imagine that. Yeah, there was like so much primping and so many things you could do to get ready for your prom night. And I know for a fact that I cleaned out a ditch <laughs> and my arms probably looked great. You know, I was probably all toned up and yeah, had a fresh glow. Mm-hmm. It's healthy. It was, <laughs> it was interesting in high school too, when you'd come back from summer and the kids that worked on ranches would have, you know, these beastly tans from like the elbow down and would be ripped out of their minds, <laughs> guys and gals both. Because you're carrying heavy stuff outside, running for your life from mosquitoes and, you know, cattle that don't want you to be right where you are. And all the kids that lived in town, like, they'd have to, like, really buckle down to get in shape for, <laughs> yeah. you know, whichever fall sport they were doing. I was like, oh, my gosh, I only have to, like, go to football practice twice a day. Right, like dreamy daily doubles. <laughs> <laughs> Finally get to rest a little bit. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Remember mom told us that soccer was for those poor town kids that are bored. Yeah. I'm prejudiced towards soccer to this day. I know. Mark played like professional soccer. I'm like, yeah, it's because you lived in town. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's too funny. So you have been in the mom business for a little while now. I have. Yeah. Um, just got a little over two years in. <laughs> um, Hank turned two in January, and um, Ira was born in February. Yep. Two strapping young men in the making. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which one of them you think is going to be tougher? Oh, it's it's hard to tell and also hard to define tough. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I was told I was tough my whole life, and I really clung to that um, as as an identity maker. And I don't know that that's one I want to pass on. I did some stupid stuff because I was real tough. So, but you're doing good now. Maybe that was important. Maybe it was. Um, it still gets me through some stuff. Uh, I um, I carry a rock in my boot sometimes when I'm doing something that scares me. To remind me that I'm tough. That's weird. I know. See? Like, maybe I shouldn't have been told I was so tough all my life. There's some weirdness there. I think that's the biggest challenge of, like, raising kids is you admire 
I have so much admiration for our mom now. Like that's what I was going to ask. Whole new perspective. Like now that you are starting a cattle ranch of your own with your husband and these two little boys in tow, um, how does that experience change the way you feel about how we grew up and and you know mom working the ranch and working in town and taking care of us and everything that goes along with that? Um. I can tell you after I had Hank, I couldn't stop thanking our mom um, for a while. Um, I still just, my perspective um, of everything I was given as a child and then everything she did is, it's totally changed. Um, And I didn't, you know, there was a lot of years I didn't think I would come back here and be doing this kind of work on this same place in the same way. And now, um, you know, part of that's just growing up and being in lots of different places and having that perspective, but then having kids, like I don't want to raise them anywhere else yeah, or any other way. And that takes some sacrifice to do. Um, and I know that they won't appreciate it. <laughs> they might eventually. Eventually. Yeah. yeah. But, but like you said, we didn't know that everybody else didn't grow up on a ranch. Like, it's not like you treat it special. You don't know how. Yeah. No, and it's it's tough to shake some of that stuff off. And it, it can be difficult for a lot of kids that grow up in ag communities to assimilate to other environments. And both of us had the advantage of living abroad for whole years when we were in, we were in high school. I lived in Norway. You lived in Argentina. Mm-hmm. So... You came from this county that's 1.5 million acres, give or take. Got about 5,000 people. And at that time, I think there was around 65,000 cows. And then where did you move to in Argentina? So I moved just outside the capital of Buenos Aires, which was 11.5 million people at the time. So some cultural changes between Wallowa County and Buenos Aires. Yes, there were a few. Um, and I came back and applied for possibly the smallest college in the Western States. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not that I didn't enjoy my time living in a city and still appreciate a city, but it's not where I want to be from. Right. I lived in a town of 150,000 and you know, it was crazy trying to figure out public transportation, um, all the things that you have to figure out as a foreign exchange student. And I highly encourage any kid listening to this, like, if you're considering it, do it. It was the most formative year of my life. Um, it wasn't all good experiences, but it was a terrific experience. Highly recommend it. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, and I think it was incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, but probably the best thing I ever did as well. Yeah. No, definitely. You, you learn a lot and you learn as much about where you came from as you do about where you currently are. And that was the big difference for me. Like I, I watched the U S go to war from a foreign country right. that had a huge impact on me. I got to look at the way the rest of the world felt about that. And, you know, talking to people at home, it was right after nine 11 people understood, um, right. But in Norway, every high school student in the country protested and refused to go to school 
when we invaded Iraq. Right. I was like, what? Like, this is nuts. I, I can't believe that this is happening. And I really wondered, like, is there going to be fallout on me? Like, and am I in trouble here because they're protesting what America is doing and I'm here as an American representing America? And I was like, if that's the case, like, bring it on. But it, it was very odd to me because Norway had previously very much benefited from the U.S. intervening in World War II, right. for example. But memories are short. Anyways, not, not, uh, not talking about foreign policy here, but it's interesting to get that contrast. And you had more contrast than I did, but I still had significant contrast. I'd never lived in a place um, where I didn't drive when I was in Norway. Foreign exchange students aren't allowed to drive, but um, I... You know, lived here, lived in Norway, um, I lived in Montana, I lived in Idaho, and then when I went to Officer Canada School, I was living just south of Washington, D.C. So that was the first place I'd ever driven that had stoplights. And if you're not used to looking up for these magical <laughs> glowing orbs that tell you when you can and cannot go. The stop and go, right? Do uh, you just treat them like stop signs? Well, I just didn't even see him. You know, I was looking out in the distance, like trying to find an elk or something. Like we're used to looking miles away almost all the time. And it's not just that you can see miles. Like we're looking for things that are in our area that are going to change how we go about our day. Um, like you or I cannot drive past a, a pasture that has cattle in it without giving every animal a quick scan to make sure everything's okay, whether there are cows or not. Mm -hmm. um, so we're always looking out. We're not looking up. We don't, we're not controlled by, by glowing lights in the sky. So people that had to ride with me, God bless their hearts, had some really terrifying experiences in the greater DC area. <laughs> right. <laughs> Be like, red light. Like, oh, what's that mean? <laughs> yeah, I think we talk a lot about when you live out here, you're so observant, you know, yeah. like being in the ranching lifestyle. That's one of the things that I know employers later in my life were like, you're so observant, you know, but it's a specific kind of observant because when you grow up in the city, I think street smarts, that level of observant, we don't really maybe necessarily get. Yeah. Um, so we don't, you know, see... I don't know, something sketchy or a red light or whatever. We're looking around, but you're right. We're probably not looking right in front of us. Yeah. Um, although I am always amazed in movies when people can follow somebody and they not notice. Yeah. Like they just follow them for like towns and towns <laughs> and no one's like, hey, that black car has been back there for a while. But that's something you don't pick up on. Yeah. If you're in traffic all the time, right? Maybe that's just a movie thing. Maybe. In movies, people can also run on foot from cars, and sometimes they get away. And uh, I don't think that checks out. Really? <laughs> sometimes it'll be like a parking lot. It's like, no, no, I'm gonna get you if I'm in <laughs> if I'm in the truck. If I'm in my F one fifty, I'm gonna beat you in this race. We'll try that out later. Okay, I'll drive. Yeah. I haven't sprinted a half mile in a while either. <laughs> well, the good news is it's not going to take a half mile for me to prove this point. So raising the little dudes, I, I mean, you, you I've heard you describe your profession as being a mom. Mm -hmm. And when a lot of people hear that, 
they think stay at home mom. Mm-hmm. But you are doing anything but staying at home. So I know the other day you were um, feeding cattle with uh, with both of them. What does that look like? Yeah. Um, if somebody never fed cows in their lives, like describe the okay scene for them. So. Uh, to go feed cows, um, our cows right now are 45 minutes away from us. So loading up kids and getting them out of the house is challenge number one. Um, typically it's just like a, a clothing and feeding and outdoor issue. Um, so yeah, getting the two-year-old to keep all of his clothes on while I get the two-month-old in the car seat with his clothes and clean buns and everybody loaded with snacks and diaper bags is the first challenge. And we need to do this by a certain time in the morning. You know, cows need fed the same way that our kids need fed. Um, we're responsible for all of it. And so, um, yeah, that's step number one. Everybody in the vehicle with a proper amount of clothes and snacks on board. We drive 45 minutes, get there. Our hay is um, in very large bales. How much does a bale weigh? Between 12 and 1,400 pounds. So we use a very large tractor to load those bales. So typically, I will put the two-month-old in a front pack on me, and then the two-year-old, depending on what uh, he thinks his best, most helpful role will be, (laughs) um, he either watches the dogs and stays out of the way, or he gets in the tractor with us as well. Mm-hmm. So there's two or three of us in the tractor. Um, we then grab a couple of bales, put it onto a, um, we call it a hay wagon, but really it's just a trailer mm-hmm. behind a truck. Get those loaded. Um, then the two-month-old pretty much stays in a front pack with me. Um, and the two-year-old drives the truck. Um, after we get into the pasture, I just, I put it in four low and put it in first gear and he drives relatively straight. Um, the windows are both down so I can jump back off and, um, help if needed. Um, there's typically a dog or two in there with him too. So sometimes he gets distracted and he's not <laughs> driving at all. Um, but oh, the truck's still going, the truck's still going and we just kind of bump across the pasture, um, Sometimes I'll put the two-month-old in a car seat and put him in the truck as well. With the dogs and the two-year-old, it can get a little too wild in there for him. So um, if he's with me, he just has a little blanket or something over his head. I flake off hay across the pasture, and um, then we head back and do whatever happens next. We tag calves or usually snacks and diaper changes happen in there as well. So, and why, where's your husband during all this? He's working for another ranch so that we get a paycheck. Yeah. And that's the thing that people don't, well, there's so much people don't understand about ranches, but, um, one of the things that they don't understand is that I don't know any successful ranches where they, where somebody doesn't have an outside job or two. So you've got to, you've got to be hustling all the time. At, at multiple jobs so yeah it's not unusual for mark to leave the house at five in the morning go work for one ranch 
come maybe home for lunch, go work for a second ranch. Um, he works for two different places here right now. And then um, have us pick him up in the afternoon and come help us with our cows. Um, we feed late in the day. It helps the cows to calve during the day if you feed them at night. So he works extremely hard. And so do I. And my job doesn't make any income. Right. And so then that's why I think when you say I'm a mom or even a rancher, there's this idea that you're kind of just existing. You're not really working. Um, There's so much romanticism around that as if it's a job for retirees or um, must be nice kind of attitude around it when really you're stewarding the land, you're producing food, and you're raising the next generation. Those are really big roles. Fairly important. Fairly important, yeah. But um, when we base importance of things on monetary values, it's not important. Yeah. Okay, so I want to get into what you're just starting to talk about, which is what does starting to become a rancher look like for you today? It is not easy. Um, So it looks like a big government loan. Um, The Farm Service Agency is who we go through. And we, um, my husband and I got a loan to purchase cattle. And also we get an operating loan. So an annual loan and a seven-year term loan. And then you got to find grass and space for each season. You can't hold cattle on the same pasture all season long. You would ruin the ground. Why would that ruin the ground? It would ruin the ground because there's no way to let the grass grow back. Okay. So you need to have cattle on a pasture for a little while or for as long as it takes for them to consume how much of the grass? You want to consume, depending on the grass, if it's thin soil, we do about 30%. Um, if it's irrigated, you can do 70. Okay. And then you move them off and you allow that grass to recuperate? Right. Gotcha. So you need to have multiple locations to move these cattle so that you can keep the ground healthy. Exactly. What happens if you just leave them there and you eat all the grass? Uh, you don't have grass to come back to the next year. Um, and you're you're going against what you believe in at the same time. So, um, Which is to say what? Which is to say that you're trying to improve the land using grazing animals as a tool to do that. And that benefits you if you're coming back to that land, your cattle will have more feed, they'll gain better, they'll be healthier. So there's an economic benefit, but there's also a moral responsibility to preserving healthy soils and grasses and land. How does that affect wildlife? Well, it's what wildlife need. I mean... We've pushed wildlife out into specific places, so they're not migrating in the same way anymore. And so they might leave places longer than they are able to now. And so we have to work with large herds of elk, let's say, to make sure that they still have some grass and water left as well. They leave some for us and we leave some for them. Right. And... Cattle and elk are often targeting different forage species. Right. 
more similar than, um, say, cattle and deer, but still different. Um, elk will spend quite a bit of the year targeting woody debris, for example, whereas cattle really don't like to eat wood. Yeah. So you're leasing a couple pastures, two or three pastures? Three. So we lease one big summer lease. Um, so it's in the canyon. So that's that thin soil that we're talking about. It's not irrigated. So we go on when the grass starts growing um, in the spring um, at a time when we can kind of ensure that the cattle aren't going to be able to stay ahead of that grass. And when we check it to fix fence, there's usually this year there was probably 450 elk um, out there grazing ahead of us, which is honestly a challenge. It's a challenge to our fences and it's a challenge to being able to turn out off of our winter ground. And our winter ground is generally somebody's hayfield because they want cows to fertilize that in the winter. Yeah. And those elk will eat the first little bit of green that comes up and eat it right down to the ground. And they can do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, elk are, are one of the most damaging invasive species in a lot of the country. But they taste good. They're fun to hunt. We like elk. Um, but cattle ranchers really suffer um, from elk a lot of times. And that's a tricky thing. And one of the tricky things with that is they're like, well, why don't you let me come in and hunt them? Like, okay, we've tried that. And sometimes we do. And a lot of people will. But say you've got 450 head of elk out there and they're eating between 20 and 40 pounds of food per day. And you shoot one of them. So now there's 449 head. But in doing so, you scared them. And now the entire herd bailed out and took out a quarter mile of fence when they did it. What's it cost to build a quarter mile of range fence these days? I honestly don't know. It's about $2,500. Yeah, about 10000 bucks a mile. So that's a, that's a very reasonable thing. So, you know, you just cost $2,500 and we've still got 449 head of elk. They can now come in and out of that pasture with impunity. And just because you shot one doesn't mean they're going to leave. Yeah. Um, they're going to be... They're going to be right back again. So it's not necessarily a good solution. Oftentimes it does more harm than good. So you've got a, you've got a whole bunch of elk out there in a unit that is over its elk management objective. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're eating the stuff that first comes up. So you kick out cows and calves in there this time yep. of year. Yeah. Yep. Any other wildlife species that can cause conflict that are in that area? Uh, yeah, so we have um, wolves. Yeah. Um, we had a wolf den right right next to the pasture that we turned in first uh, last year. Um, as far as we know, they're still there this year. And, um, you know, we are, we're of the mind that everything in balance. Um, but it's another challenge. And when you're talking about building fence, the reason I don't know is because we can't afford to hire anybody to build fence. Right. Our margins are so thin that we're doing everything ourselves. So you, you, how many cows did you buy when you took out that loan? 120. 120. And they're bred mothers, right? Yep. Uh, how many calves did you have out of that 120 cows? So the first year didn't go that well. Yeah. Um, and Crit- critical year. Really critical year. Really tough year to... Um, 
to not have the success that we needed to have. And that was a, a lot of different things. Um, we, we rented ground that we didn't know the history of, and we ended up with scours in a lot of our calves and we lost calves to being sick. Then we turned out and, um, we lost calves to the weather and probably a few to wolves that we never could claim. And so when we gathered, we only had 91 calves. Ouch. Mm -hmm. And how many calves did you need to have, um, in order to pay back your loan for the year? 105. 105. So now you're in the hole just starting out. Yep. So tough. So tough. So we sold a couple of horses. Yep. Still trying to make it work. Yep. All right. So year two. Year two looks so much better. <laughs> it's going really well. Um, still got a long ways to go before we can sell our calves. Um, but our calving went much better. We learned a lot. And um, we were able to keep our cows healthier um, since we owned them. And that makes a big difference. You know, we're turning out this year and there's a real fear of drought. So that's our next challenge is um, if we have to leave there early because there's not enough water in the ponds and there's not enough grass growing. Um, you know, we've already calculated how to pay for that pasture, but not for an in-between pasture right. in the fall. But it's it's also about making connections and and getting opportunities. And we've been told no, no less than a hundred times. Um, knocking on doors, writing to absentee owners, um, just absolutely stalking people on Onyx and trying to find space for cows. And um, we we've got our at least big toe in the door, so we're we're still making it work. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, carbon sequestration with grass fed beef. Okay, one two. It's interesting. It is interesting. Um, so the carbon cycle. You know, talk about. I'll talk about the nerdy stuff. You talk about the nerdy stuff. Okay. So there's CO two in our atmosphere and CO2 can lead to um, holding more higher temperatures in our atmosphere. Plants take CO2 and through photosynthesis turn it into oxygen and grow and they store that carbon. They become that carbon that comes from the atmosphere. So all life forms are composed of carbon. So plant takes carbon out of the atmosphere, turns it into plant, releases oxygen, cow comes along, eats the plant, and then grows from the calories that it consumed in that plant. And then that carbon that was in the atmosphere is now in the cow, and we graze in a way that makes that plant continue to grow again and again and again throughout the year. And as, the, as it does that, it's just pulling more and more carbon out of the atmosphere and fixing it down into the soil as well as turning it into beef so that it's not in the atmosphere. Yeah. Carbon cycle. Carbon cycle. So when people talk about grass-fed beef and carbon sequestration, generally, this is what they're talking about. Yes. 
Um, so what do you want me to touch on there? Do you want to kick that can any farther <laughs> down the road? Um, I think that that description is not as um, palatable as the other side's argument. It's a lot easier to show pictures, images, stories of how poorly animals are treated and how feedlots are, um, you know, throwing bad things up in the atmosphere and that's what's hurting us. Cow farts. Right. Like too many cow farts, the methane. Yeah. From, that from cow farts. That's easy to sell to a two year old is pretty stoked <laughs> on farts. Um, and then so is, you know, all the way up to any generation beyond that. Um, Versus expecting somebody to learn the carbon cycle and what cows are doing. Uh, or, you know, the idea of open space and covered ground um, and how you need to graze ground to keep it covered. How does that the work? opposite. Well. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the difference between a mowed lawn and an unmowed lawn. Right. Which is a good example until people say, well, I seed my lawn. Well, cows do that too, right? So when they're grazing, they're also fertilizing and seeding the ground behind them. And as long as you're not overgrazing, so overgrazing would be um, allowing a cow to stay on a piece of ground to where they take more than 70% of that plant. That plant won't go to seed. Um, it'll be too low on the ground and... Um, the soil underneath it gets compacted so much that seed and roots actually won't grow and um, you'll end up with desertification, which is what's happened everywhere else. And it's interesting, not everywhere else, but in many places. And it's interesting that people seem to be comfortable with the idea of bringing back wild horses or buffalo, but they don't want to see cows. And that that doesn't make any sense to me because it's, it's herds being moved across the land to improve the land. Buffalo don't do that differently than cows. Actually, buffalo are just heavier. Yeah. Horses do that much differently. Yeah. Horses are not native here. No, no. Horses can be used still because cows aren't native either. Right. Well, they're bovine. Right. So they can at least do a similar thing to to other bovines yeah whereas horses are you know they're they're a new thing well horses have two sets of teeth they have bottom teeth and top teeth and so they can bite that grass all the way to the dirt right cows only have bottom teeth that allows them to not be able to get down to the dirt do you know which end of a cow stands up first the back end the back end that's one of my favoriteest lines whenever i want to like <laughs> insult somebody who thinks they know something about ranching yeah i ask them which end of a cow stands up first what do they say most people either completely panic and say they don't know or they say the front end because that's what they would do yeah but that's not how cows work because they got a big old heavy noggin they do yeah i love cows i know you don't yeah i don't love cows yeah i think cows are pretty selfish they seem to be creatively and constantly finding a way to get sick injured or die they show very little respect for any fence that i've ever had a hand in making 
and uh, I've I've had a fair number of them, you know, give their very best college try at killing me. I've yeah. been kicked and ran over so many times. I mean, you're kind of describing a toddler too. <laughs> <laughs> Not wild about toddlers. <laughs> I really look forward to like being able to do things with Hank. And right now, I still need you as his translator. He'll be like, and be like, hey, he said he wants to go fishing with you again soon. Like, that's not what he said. But it is, It though. is what he said. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So once I don't need, you know, mom translator and uh, and he can make it. You know, a few hours without shitting himself. I think, you know, me and Hank are going to have a lot closer relationship. Yeah. Um, the uncle role is awesome. And Hank and Ira both have a good one. Like, you'll do a lot of the things that um, scare me to do. Um, and and I'm, I'm happy for them to have that, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but when you're describing a cow in those terms... It it does sound a little bit like a toddler. So, um, what do you like about cows? I um, I actually think that cows are smart. Um, I like that they're trainable, and um, I like working with an animal that you can't physically control, but you can control with your body language, and that has always been something that is yeah. crazy cool to me, and it never gets old. So moving cows and big herds, um, just, I just think is one of the coolest things. And I love being able to use horses and dogs to do that. Um, I love where cows allow me to go. Um, you know, we turn, we just turned out, um, in Imnaha and they'll go up on top of these canyons and it's gorgeous. And you might go for a hike or do something out there. Um, but when you go out there and you have purpose on top of being in a beautiful place, it's kind of the best thing in the world to me. And cows allow me to do that. Well, you're back to that thing we're talking about with our childhood where it was never clear whether we were playing or working. Right. And I can see that in my kids now. And the other thing I get to see in my kids that's so cool is, um, Hank is crazy observant and he feels like he is as helpful as, anybody that we have on our payroll like you know he will get the gate at the right time and he'll close the gate so nothing gets out behind him and he loads the tagger he tries to rope um which is you know we roped everything like chickens and dogs and each other and that's happening now yeah um no roping a head catch 50 straight times before you take off to go catch the bus and right. starting over if you missed on 47. Yeah. Yeah. And not with like a chip on your shoulder about it. It's because that's what you see happening. And um, I don't I don't care if these boys end up loving cows or hating cows or being indifferent. Um, I think they'll have the same thing we had where you feel good about helping your family. And this is what my family does. And then you can have your own passions. Yeah. And honestly... I think that's incredibly formative. And for me growing up, uh, being able to, to shoot deer and feed the family like that as a little kid, that was huge for me. And that honestly had as much to do with shaping me in, 
into this profession as anything. And still the greatest portion of hunting for me is giving meat away. Yeah. Nothing better. I know. My freezer's full and I don't hunt. I think you scored some extra backstrap that I was hoping to keep for myself this year. You'll so never good, know. Good on you. <laughs> good on you. I'm going to be a little bit less generous. A little. You're going to have to eat some roast and some burger next year, I think. Yeah. You can come over for dinner. I'll cook it for you. That's nice. What do you know about cooking? I actually know a lot about cooking. Do you? I do. Yeah. I even went to school for it, which uh, um, makes me a really good mom. which was not my plan to use my culinary degree in but is that like home ec plus or what it is yeah (laughs) i went to so many years of home ec um no where where did you go to culinary school i went to the texas culinary academy and um graduated and then had an internship at uh, la traviata downtown austin um so and then i worked as a chef for a few years. And um, my husband and I actually both joke that the things that we pursued and became really good at are not family friendly. Um, My husband's an excellent cowboy. That is a single man's job. Yeah. Different than ranching. Yep. Um, Ranching is family oriented. Cowboying is not. And um, being a chef is not family friendly. Um, But being a really good cook is very family friendly. Yeah. Um, So... Yeah, um, I I love cooking. Um, I do it a lot, probably more <laughs> or just as much, it feels like, now as I did working in restaurants. And cooking was definitely a part of our upbringing, too. Very much so. All over the place, not just not just at home, but like, you know, every every aspect of family, whether it was cousins, grandma, you know, at home, whatever. The cooking was huge and it was a big deal to be a good cook. It was a big deal to have a recipe that, that you were known for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And I think that wasn't just for the women in our family. That was men and women. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Men definitely gravitated more towards meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still to me, a a very manly task is cooking meat and not just grilling. I think across the nation, people think, you know, that's a manly thing. It's like to grill a hamburger or a steak or hot dog or something. Um, but any, any aspect of meat, whether that's making roast, whether whatever it is, um, even charcuterie type stuff, that's, that seems like a very masculine thing to do, um, within the culinary space to me. Do you think that just goes back to like the hunter and gatherer aspect or why is that? I don't know. Um, for me, it's what I enjoy eating the most. Okay. And I'm much more particular about what I think its capabilities are. And that's not to say that I'm, I'm picky about the meat that I eat because I'm really not. And a lot of people get gun shy about cooking meat for me. And they're like, oh, you come from a cattle ranch, you're a hunter, you've got all this access to meat, you know, you cook all the time, you know, you work with Traeger and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but I can eat like, you know, a drive-through hamburger and just be stoked about it. Um, No big deal. I like like meat. Yeah. But I, I don't know what it is. I think mostly it's just that I... I enjoy it. I enjoy every aspect of the of the meat process. Yeah. I don't like to smell like the food I'm going to eat. Hmm. 
And a lot of times when you're cooking meat, whether it be bacon or smoking something, you end up smelling yeah. a lot like the thing you're about to eat. Yeah, it, it's usually an aromatic way to cook. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't normally enjoy that part. So I still cook a lot of meat. Describe to me how to cook the perfect hamburger. Indoor or outdoor? Outdoor. Outdoor we're gonna, burger. We're gonna we're gonna trigger this thing. Okay, so you just took away a lot of the options. So we're on a trigger. Yeah. So just basically, how do you prepare the burger meat to be its very best? Yeah. If if you say that's all there is to it. Um, I think so. I think that um, always hand form your patties. Never get frozen pre made patties. Um, let the meat come to room temperature. Um, add your seasonings right before you're about to grill it. I just like salt and pepper. Um, and I mix it into the meat. Uh, I used to be a salt on the outside person. I'm a mix in the middle of room temperature meat. Um, if I'm feeling fancy, I add a frozen butter coin to the middle of the patty. What is a frozen butter coin? Uh, so if you get butter soft and then add... Um, things to it. So like roasted garlic um, and salt is an easy go-to, but you can do like blue cheese. Um, You could do uh, chipotle, whatever you're thinking there. But um, then you roll it up in some wax paper and put it in the freezer. Do you make like a hot dog out of it? Yeah, exactly. Um, Throw that in the freezer. It doesn't take very long to freeze. And then you can slice, you, you know, get a knife, run some hot water on it, slice coins that are about a half an inch to an inch thick and big thick coins half an inch half an inch not an inch quarter inch Mm, it's not enough half an inch half inch yeah okay stick that in the middle of your patty um and then grill it and grill it hot and only to medium rare rare it's even better another thing that you taught me about hand forming these patties and i I think it's so obvious knowing it, but you make the the center of the patty thinner than the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of like a donut, but instead of a donut hole, it's just thin in the middle. And everybody that's made burgers at home have ended up with these pucks, right. like that don't fit in a bun well. And, you know, it's just troublesome as that meat loses its moisture that's evaporating as you're, as you're cooking it, it's contracting and it's doing that on the outside. So it's naturally going to squeeze up towards the middle and we'll make this sort of rounded, weird thing. That's really difficult to eat. You have to like dislocate your jaw, like a snake to bite into some of these burgers. Exactly. But if you make it nice and thin in the middle and a little bit thicker on the outside, then you'll come out with a nice uniform, you know, cooked the same all the way through and you can allow it to cook long enough to get that crispiness on the outside yeah. that way without it, you know, yeah, bubbling up and you're losing all your juices. And and then my other favorite thing is I like to tear the bread out of the center of the bun. Um, so you end up with more meat than bread when you're eating your burger. Oh, really? I get rid of that bread part. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. yeah like tear out kind of the, usually just the top of the bun. Toasted bun? Always, yeah. I uh, actually like a burnt bun, personally. Burnt. I do. Just a little bit of char on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about 
lettuce. Pro lettuce. Um, what kind of lettuce and where? Romaine, crispy, and on the bottom bun as like a barrier so that you don't get a soggy bun. Exactly. Another thing people mess up. One, they chop up their lettuce at that point. Why is it even here? Yeah. Two, you want it on the bottom. Like it, it's acting as a moisture barrier. Mm-hmm. Soggy bun's no good. Soggy bun's never good. Yeah. And if it's like you, you want a moist burger. Yeah. Moist. I'm fine with moist. But there's people. Culinary li- school, dude. There's people <laughs> listening right now that are not fine with moist. Oh, those poor people. I hope they're not driving. You only cringe <laughs> when you're driving. Sorry, folks. Do you have any of those words? Um, I do, but I, I can't ever come up with them off the top of my mm. head. But if you say one, I'll let you know. Are there any words you can't um you can't say, you can't pronounce right? Yes. Um, I'm still confused. Um what's that word? It's a food word. And I can't tell if everybody else is saying it wrong or if I'm saying it wrong. Ketchup and catsup? No. Those are two different products. <laughs> it's not even the same thing. What's the difference? Uh, I think the level of sugar. One has more sugar. I think so. Or maybe one doesn't have sugar, just has corn syrup or something. Catsup has something weird, right? I don't know. Maybe lack of tomato paste. I don't know. I don't know either. I feel like you should know. Sauces were your thing too. Sauces were totally my thing. I, but I don't remember that one. What's a good wild game sauce? Um, to come to mind. So wild game is great with berries um the tartness of like a blackberry or a huckleberry or something like that you don't want to do something super sweet but like a good tart berry um mixed with um ironically something sweet so maybe like a blackberry with maple syrup and a ton of black pepper and some butter Hmm. that's an awesome sauce to put on Sounds Some pretty game. good. Um, also red wine and garlic and like some sort of herb, like a thyme is also pretty, pretty great. I made a blueberry balsamic reduction for the mountain goat that we killed in Kodiak last year. Yeah. And I did it because there was blueberries where we were hunting and I kept getting distracted by blueberries. They were so good. They're like big huckleberries. Yeah. Um, and they were the right balance of sweet and tart. And I love that. Um, so I just made a, a little balsamic reduction with, uh, with blueberries and, and, uh, and kind of basted it on these reverse seared hunks of mountain goat. And it was pretty good. Mountain goat's not, not awesome. Yeah. Um, even the burger's a little bit tough. Like you've got to Which makes sense. battle through it kind yeah. of. But it's a three-year-old billy um, goat, four-year-old billy goat. Vinegar is an underrated ingredient, I think. I think for home cooks. Yeah. Um, I use vinegar a lot. Hmm. Um, I use it um, on potatoes. Um, it does a lot to break down enzymes and make um, make meat more mild and easier to chew. Yeah. And when in doubt, like, so for like mountain goat, I think if you chop up fresh herbs and mix that with olive oil and vinegar, that's, I mean, it's so good. Right. You can put that on anything and all of a sudden it looks fancy and tastes awesome. And people are like, wow, it is this basically salad dressing. Just because you mentioned olive oil at this point in the podcast, 
Paul Pagano is going to listen to it. Really? He's so obsessed with olive oil. No. So obsessed. And he he uses it for things outside of cooking, but he's very much into, you know, his Sicilian, Italian heritage. Um, and uh, I caught that dude putting olive oil on his motorcycle key. I was like, what are you doing? And he goes, well, it's kind of sticking a little bit going. <laughs> it's Paul's Epsom salt. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's funny that he didn't catch on to the coconut oil trend. <laughs> Because he's basically doing coconut oil things, but with olive oil because he's Italian. Mm-hmm. That's great. It is good. Yeah. It's really good. Oh, they have like olive oil um, club membership things, you know, like olive oil of the month things. Wow. Could hook him up. That's wild. Yeah. He'd be pretty pumped about that. I'm going to his house for dinner tonight. He's a terrific cook too. Yeah. I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Hank cooks with me. Uh. One of the more genius things I've seen Hank do is uh, he was supposed to be doing dishes, I think, and he couldn't reach the sink because mm-hmm. he's um, he's not quite a human yet. So he just pulled out this bottom drawer and then climbed in it as a step so that he could get his paws in the sink. I don't think he actually washed a dish, but he was trying. You know, he's yeah. getting after it. Yeah. Um, he's actually a pretty good little dishwasher. Is he? Yeah. Nice. Um, and weirdly helpful in the kitchen um but what you just said there to take it a little bit serious i'm so you're so wired for your own kids right like i think my kids are the best Mm -hmm. because they are the best um but letting them like it's easy to love your kids the hard part is letting them go and do things but them learning that they're capable and so instead of looking to you, they do things like pull out the bottom drawer mm-hmm. is like, I mean, that's the best moments yeah, by far. And, um, watching, watching them figure stuff out, even Ira at two months old, like not, you know, when he squeaks, not giving him a pacifier or a bottle, but like watching him kind of try to figure out how to self-soothe or how to get in a different position or do something for himself. And, I think that's all you can do because then they'll go out in the world and pick whatever occupation, religion, partner thing. And they'll have that confidence that they're capable of making their own choices. You know, they're just confident little humans. And my kids are wildly confident. And I think if there's any indicator, if I'm doing well or not, that feels like it. I think you're doing great. Thanks. I'm, I don't think I'm going to tell Hank that he's tough. (laughs) <laughs> but I am going to make sure that he knows it's important to be tough. Yeah. Again, tough has a weird connotation for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm tough. Um, and uh, going through a couple of labors of giant babies, I'm completely sure I'm tough. Um, Smaller than we were. But it's, I know. Oh, her poor mother. Um, she's such a rock star. Uh, it, tough. Yeah. Like, how do you define tough? Ability to withstand hardship. So that's like resilient or being strong. No, strong is something else. Strong is like the ability to move something. That's just like physical strength. 
I tried to leave it vague so that the something oh, could okay. be other than a physical object, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure I that my kids will know it's important to be tough. Yeah, I'm going to tell them. I know. I'm going to point What else are you going to tell them? I'm going to point it out if they ever start to move the needle the other way. I'm like that's not tough. Yeah. I'm going to shame them into being tough. No. So that's the thing. A little bit of shame. I know you love the shame. I do. It's powerful. Powerful motivator. It's not. It is um, on a short-term basis. Hmm. But I don't think that shame creates permanent change. It does if you're in a community. But it doesn't feel good. Right. That's why you don't do the thing. Right. That's the whole point of it. What if you don't do the thing because it's worth it not to? Not because you're going to be embarrassed of that thing. I don't know. I struggle with this one. I just think. That wasn't well described. I don't know what you're I talking know, about. I know. I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to describe it well because <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan of public humiliation. I think like that quick instant you know, thing, but not shame like is a lingering little demon inside you that then like comes out sideways in weird ways. It's a different experience for guys and girls. I believe that. that. Yeah. yeah. I I do. Um, I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. But yeah, other things I'm going to tell them, I don't know. Kind of see how it goes. Really? Yeah. You don't have like some things. These are the things I want my nephews to know. Well, that's a pretty extensive list. Okay. And uh, I don't want you to be privy to all of it. Ooh. Yeah. There's some things that they're going to learn from me that you're not going to know about. You know, little kids are like the best rats in the world, right? Like, they're so honest. (laughs) And as soon as you say, don't tell your mom, they're going to be so excited to tell their mom. Okay. Well, I'll be more clever about how I tell them (laughs) not to tell you. I think I'll find out. Probably not all of it. <laughs> Mom thought she knew about all the shenanigans that we got up to, and she did not. Didn't we tell her about the hay hook like a few years ago? Yeah. Yeah. That was effective shame. Remember you told me not to tell because I would be in so much trouble? That you stabbed me with a hay hook? You stabbed me with a hay That's hook. That's not how I remember it. I have a scar. I do too. Are there multiple incidents? It sounds like maybe there is a little revenge going on. I'm sure you started it. All I said was on guard and you... I do remember this one now. Chopped me. Like you didn't even look. You just did like a (laughs) crazy, like you want to play on guard and then you like did this crazy chop move without even making eye contact and it just went... That's what you get. Yeah. And somehow convinced me I would be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. It worked. We didn't tell her until we were in our 30s, so well played. Do you have any uh, any advice for the other mothers out there? Um, Maybe some that are fresher to the game than you? Sure. Um, I would say take your kids everywhere. Um, like, it's worth it. Sometimes at the beginning of the day, it doesn't feel worth it. It's... It's slower and harder and more complicated to figure out how to keep them safe and fed while you're um, doing whatever you're doing, but it's so worth it. 
And I know that I get to do that. I have a a life that allows me to take my kids with me everywhere. But I think sometimes there's a message out there that you have to figure out how to keep your kids distracted. Um, like, you know, I'll just use the example everybody does, but like put an iPad in front of them and, you know, put them in the car with their seatbelts on and leave them there so that you can do something. And I think it's so much more rewarding and creates such a better human if you let them come with you and let them be a part of it. There's something they can do that is engaging and with you and um, then they get, you get to feel like a family unit out of that and they get to feel like they're part of the team, like they contributed. And I think that all humans feel better when they have purpose and they believe that they contributed. That starts from a really young age. I think that's, I think learning that we don't like change is very obvious in toddlers that change is hard and that feeling capable is joyful. Gotcha. Okay. I think that's solid advice. Yeah. Also, this is my favorite. There's a thing that the French call la pause, and it's giving just a moment before you um, go in to solve the problem or comfort or soothe or just that little second a lot of times um, is everything. So if your kid's having a hard time with something, just give it a second. Give them that opportunity to figure it out for themselves and then help if you need to. That can be applied to just about everything. Right? In the grand old Marine Corps, we called it a tactical pause. Okay. And when I first heard that, I thought that is a joke. Like tempo is everything. We've got to keep going, keep going, keep going, move faster than our opposing force. And once I learned how much of a force multiplier it could be to give everybody a chance to just do a, a quick reset, like it's worth it. Yeah. Um, so whether you're trying to move through an obstacle, whether you're facing some type of challenge, or whether you're trying to help somebody become enabled to, to be better at helping themselves, I think that a quick tactical pause is oftentimes a very, very good method. And I far prefer that than rattling off some French nonsense like you did. That's fine. I could, <laughs> I could uh, apply that to cattle as well. Um, working cows sometimes feels really intense. And like the only way to get it done is big yelling and fast moving. And a lot of times that cow that just split off and is going the wrong way, if you just give her a second, she's going to turn around and things will smooth out yeah 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 good pause and uh sometimes she won't sometimes she's just gonna oh yeah go sometimes that's your whole day fences and go hide and that's uh that's your life now is trying to bring that cow back into the fold i know but i'd rather have that life than trying to figure out i don't know why stacy and hr is crying again and that being my whole day yeah that'd be terrible yeah Stacy should bottle that 
up deep inside. Stacey, you just need to be tougher. Never <laughs> bring it up again. Yeah. People didn't shame her enough into being tough when she was a kid. Yeah. Stacey's not, she doesn't have a rock in her shoe reminding her put, to toughen she, up. She should do that. Yeah. Come on, Stacey. Adele, I think you're a great mom. Thank you. And uh, I'm proud of you. And I'm looking forward to uh, to watching these these little dudes get older. Yeah. Um, me too. I'm glad I'm doing it here, surrounded by family. Yeah. If people want to know more about you or or about your ranch, where do they find you? Um, I do have an Instagram account that is not completely consistent, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Hot Shots, two T's and hot and two T's and shots. And um, yeah, you can also, if um, I love talking to other moms, especially ranching moms or people trying to do all this life with kiddos in tow. Um, so if you wanted to email me, it's just my name. Adele shot at gmail.com. All right. Well, happy Mother's Day and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I live in an old cabin with bad to non existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my wood pile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.